Well, good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing today? All right. Uh, my name is John Hansen. I am uh, blessed to be able to do the uh, podcast for Block Club Chicago and work on our TV show as well. Uh, really appreciate this awesome turnout here on a uh, Wednesday afternoon for such an important conversation here today. Uh, we really appreciate you all coming out, of course. Just as I'm sure many of you know, but a reminder, Block Club Chicago is a nonprofit newsroom, and we are celebrating our fifth year this year, which we are incredibly uh, proud of, of course. Uh, we hope all of you are subscribers or donors. The ballot, of course, is kind of our subset, our election coverage, your Chicago election headquarters. It exists in all the great stories that the reporters are telling. Some great conversations we've already had with candidates before the uh, first round of the elections, which all get turned into the uh, podcast for the ballot as well. So I don't want to take up any more time. Let's go ahead and bring to the stage the reason why we're here today. Longtime political reporter and uh, commentator Laura Washington will hand the interview with Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Hello. Can you hear me, everybody? Welcome. It's so great to see a, a good crowd of people out there on this beautiful afternoon. I really want to appreciate, say how much I appreciate you all coming. I am a proud, very proud a board president of Block Club Chicago, and I'm so uh, particularly proud of the incredible work we've been doing over the years, especially around the, the ballot, and I'm glad to see that you guys are interested enough to come and hear more from our candidates. And some of you might have caught our first round. We did a, a whole round of uh, interviews with all the, uh, the pre-runoff candidates, and a couple lucky ones are getting to come back and talk to us again, and one of them is Brandon Johnson. So we're really thrilled. Thank you very much. Mr. Johnson, for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Laura, and I'm very humbled and honored to be here. And we are humbled and honored to have you. So I wanted to talk, uh, before we get into the, you know, the, the real tough stuff, and there's a lot of important policy issues, and I, I want to move through this because we've only got an hour, and there's so many important things to talk about. But I want to talk a little bit about your personal background, and you've talked a little bit on the campaign trail about your family and com coming from a family of 10. Your father was a preacher. You had to share the bathroom, but, but let's dig a little bit more into that. Maybe not so much the bathroom, but some, some of the other personal things. So, so tell me a little bit more about the family and, and, and how many kids and uh, where did you fit in in terms of age and affinity? Yeah, thank you for that. So yes, uh, 10 of us. My parents were also foster parents. So there were times where our home uh, would be incredibly chaotic at times. Uh, we probably had enough people to, uh, to run in every single ward in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents were just incredible human beings. And I'm the middle child, right? So in this conversation, I could cry and laugh at the same time. And, um, but it, my life position as a middle child and um, being and raised in such a dynamic family, very talented family too. I, you know, my siblings, you know, my, my father, was a pastor, and so I have siblings who played instruments, they could sing, very creative. These individuals that I grew up with um, had so many skills, uh, writers, um, just lovers of people. But being a middle child, I believe it really prepared me for this moment mm -hmm. um, because you know, you're accountable and responsible as the middle child. Um, you have to be the reasonable person. Um, you learn to share, to give and take when necessary. Um, giving more was the was the more regular proclivity of, of mine. That was just, you know, my disposition. 
but it was hard. You know, there were times when the ends didn't meet. And so my father um, worked a couple of jobs. He was also a pastor, as I said, but he never took a salary from the church. That was a part of his value system. And what, what was the church and, yeah, and so what, we, where was it? Yes, yeah, so we grew up uh, in one of the, I think it might be the largest black denomination in the entire world. Um, it's the Church of God in Christ. Um, and so it's, you know, known literally all over the world. And my father's church was in Elgin. He eventually moved it to South Elgin. And it was there where I really learned the value of what it means to, to be of service to others. And, you know, I remember coming home, though, at times when, you know, we would have an orange extension cord from our window to our neighbor's window just to make sure electricity could still move. You would come home and the water wasn't on. We, I was raised in the 80s, right? So the economy in the 80s, particularly under Reaganomics, were very brutal to working class people. My father was a, 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 a unionist. So he was a part of the AFSCME. Um, local, he still pays his retirement dues to ask me, and I'm very humbled mm -hmm. to have the endorsement of my father's union. Mm -hmm. And the last time that my father's union ever endorsed a mayoral candidate was Mayor Harold Washington. So I'm greatly humbled by that. That's a good legacy. What about your mom? Yeah, so my mother was, um, you know, she is, you know, the person where I draw a lot of inspiration from. You know, unfortunately, my mother had a rare heart disease, and there was a moment in my father's work experience where he lost his job and we were without health insurance for about two years and because of this rare heart disease and the expenses associated with that um, health insurance is tied to a w-2 and as a result of my father uh, being fired and dismissed though he won the job back um, I thought my, we just not, could not keep up with the medical debt mm. or the medical bills and so uh, my mother passed away when she was 50 years old. Oh, wow. Um, I remember the last time I saw her alive, in fact. It's almost like we knew this would be it. And she was preparing for church um, on a Sunday afternoon, and my older brother, Leon, was preparing to drop me back off to college. <clears throat> and she looked me in the face, Laura, and she said, she just stopped me, and she said, Brandon, you're going to help a lot of people one day, but you got to learn how to take care of yourself a little bit better. And... I don't know if she knew I was gonna run for mayor of the city of Chicago, but she understood that my reach was gonna be beyond the capacity of being a church leader, mm -hmm. but that the best part of me has to be completely whole and strong to endure what would ultimately become this moment. And so, dear mama. <laughs> my mama's still watching over you. That's, that's, very, that's very important. Okay, so uh, let's talk about public safety and policing because that's really, for many voters, that's the most important, most dominant issue in this campaign. We just had a conversation yesterday at the Public Safety Forum, which was interesting. As I, as I, as I said to you backstage, you were pretty wily yesterday. And one of the things that um, we talked about was your position, or at least it sounds like your, the appearance that you were supporting uh, defunding the police. Now, you say that, you, that you've never supported it. You said that it may be a, you said, uh, that it may be a political goal but it was not your political goal. So you're saying that defunding the police is not your political goal. C explain what you mean by that and what is your political goal? Yeah, my political goal is really to have a better, stronger, safer Chicago. That is my goal. That is the goal for all the residents of the city of Chicago. I'm confident around that. You know, as far as my vision, you know, for, for, for public safety, I'm not going to defund the police, right? But what I am committed to doing is to make sure that we're actually investing in a smart way. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that we are asking too much of law enforcement. 
And we also have um, a disconnect between law enforcement and communities in which they've been assigned to. And so we have to fix that, right? And so that's why I'm committed to making sure that we're actually solving violent crimes in the city of Chicago. I have the ability as the mayor of the city of Chicago um, to promote and train 200 more detectives. And this is what is coming from the rank and file. When you have a clearance rate, particularly in neighborhoods where, there is most, where, where it's most violent, it's hard to engender confidence when you're not solving crime. I think the number is under 20% in some of the most high um, violent crime yeah, neighborhoods. 50% citywide, which is low, below many other cities, but well below 20% in African-American and Latino communities. And so your point is, is that you need to get more, if you want to engender confidence in the police, you need to get more crime solved and you need more detectives on the force to do that. Absolutely, and that's a makeup of the consent decree. I was grateful to have the support of the, the top legal law enforcement officer in the entire state of Illinois. That's the Attorney General, uh, Kwame Raul, who agrees with me that we have to have a holistic approach towards public safety, and that's what my plan ultimately articulates. Solving violent crimes, making sure that we are implementing the consent decree, which is a spending commitment, conservatively $50 million to begin to actually break that down, but also making sure that we are enforcing the laws that are on the books, right? We have red flag laws, individuals who are getting guns illegally, who should not have guns. We wanna make sure that those guns are not on the street. Um, but we also have to get at the root causes, right, of, of violence in the city of Chicago. We have to respond with immediacy and with urgency, which I'm prepared to do, my public safety plan articulates that. But we also have to make sure that we are reopening our mental health centers so that individuals who are experiencing a, a a great deal of trauma, and that includes law enforcement, have the services and the support systems that, are, that, that need to be in place. Now, I know there's some definition differences between uh, the way we talk about uh, mental health crises, right? right so right, I get the 3.5 versus individuals who are suffering from overdose. I see all that connected to mental health, right? Okay. And so having treatment, not trauma, and this is why I indicated it also includes EMTs as well as mental health providers to be on the front line that will ultimately free up law enforcement to deal with the more serious violent crimes. This is about being smart, not just tough, and that's what my public safety plan articulates, and that's what I would do as mayor of the city of Chicago. And you've also talked about some cuts in the police department. You, you, you want to cut some expenses around, you make it, you've had a couple examples like designers and people who, are per, who may be seen as peripheral to policing, but you want to cut something like $150 million it's, out, out, it's, of the, out of the budget. Where is that going to come from and how is that going to keep us safer? It's not a cut, mm -hmm. right? When I talk about $50 million conservatively to implement the consent decree, that's where some of that $150 million can go towards, right? This is about appropriating in a smart, intelligent way, right? And so a part of that, part of our diagnostic approach towards the police budget is about accountability for the taxpayers. Right, because we know that we spend more on policing per capita than anywhere else in the country. And this is why I posed the question last night, are we any safer? And the question that is asked comes back without any emphatic doubt that we're not, mm -hmm. right? So this is about being smart about our investments. And again, it's not a cut, it's an allocation towards what you're, actually can work. You're moving, you're moving money from a less effective place to a better effective place. So, so right. um, 
part of the whole clearance rate discussion is also co connects to community relationship with the police. Uh, many people believe that it's difficult for police to, to solve crimes because people in the community don't trust them, don't share information with them, are not, do, don't, don't feel they're on their side. People, many of the people in the community don't feel that the cops are on their side. What, what's your plan to, to increase the trust between community people and the police? Well, again, I don't want to blow past this too fast. Solving crime will help build confidence in relationships, particularly where they have been broken. But it also requires us to make sure that police officers get the opportunity and experience to participate in community without necessarily wearing a badge. So like the 15th district, for instance, on the west side of Chicago, you have individuals who have built and expanded Little League Baseball. Like there are multiple parks over there, like Austin, Garfield Park, um, La Follic Park, right, where they are literally um, on the front line, on their days off, coaching the very young people that they are charged to serve and protect, mm -hmm. right? And so these are opportunities that are already available. Many of our, our, our law enforcement, particularly black and brown um, officers, they're pastors of churches, um, they run businesses, um, again, they're coaches. So you see this as a model that we could replicate throughout the city, uh, activities that where the police can engage with, with residents. With residents, with community organizations, mm -hmm. with our faith community, um, in many different facets, right? I was a little provoked last night, right? And not because I was angry. It was more or less that we don't talk about community policing anywhere else outside of black and brown communities. And what I'm simply suggesting is that there is a very natural engagement that particularly officers of color have more of a, a propensity to see themselves as a part of the community because they come from the communities in which they serve, right? And right. so think about it, and I said this last night, many of our police officers that come from, that are black and brown, they are raised in some of the most extreme circumstances, some of the most violent communities, and they're saying, sign me up for that. Mm -hmm. Do you understand how resilient and how exhilarating that is for someone to be in a community where they haven't had the best relationships with law enforcement. And they're saying that I want to be one because I want to be an example of what serving and protecting looks like. But we can't keep right. asking police officers to do their job and then do someone else's job as well by being a social worker or a marriage counselor. There's too much pressure being applied to first responders in general. And I can speak to that as a public school teacher. Though I was raised by pastors, I'm not a social worker. Right. Right. And so when a child was having a, an, a mental health breakdown in my classroom, could I de-escalate? Yes. Mm -hmm. Am I trained to give them the full processing that they need? No, because that's not my job. And so this is why I've advocated for social workers and counselors and mental health responders to be able to deal with the trauma that, we're in, that we see every single day. The same dynamic applies to law enforcement. Okay. Uh, let's move on, and this is a topic that's related to public safety, and that's the CHA. Um, we've, we took a lot of questions from Block Club readers, and we're, I'm hoping we're going to get to some specific ones tonight, but 
Um, one reader shared that, that, that he frequently wastes an hour to get onto the blue, blue Line train. Another said his family of five relies on the CTA for their sole transportation, despite the fact that they feel it's, quote, filthy, unsafe, and unreliable, unquote. I spoke to a voter today that said he's been a CTA rider for 53 years. He rides the red line, and he says people are being terrorized, that's his word, on the red line between 95th Street and Harrison. People are do dealing drugs, doing drugs, selling contraband, jumping the gates, assaulting riders, and many are mentally ill and homeless. It's a big problem. What is your immediate plan to address the, the, the safety and security and cleanliness on the CTA? Look, I echo the sentiments of it being unsafe and unreliable. And one of the things that we have to do right away is just to make sure that there's, actual, there's an actual regular, honest schedule so that riders who are still hanging in there with us, and I appreciate that because my family relies upon public transportation as well. Um, we use the green line. That's the one that's closest to us. I usually ride three to four times a month. It's not on a regular basis, mm -hmm. but at least three to four times a month from, in the from, summertime. From, from your neighborhood to downtown? Usually downtown. Uh, mm -hmm. um, what, what kinds of things do you see? Do you see exactly, some of the same everything, kind of stuff? Everything has been described, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but what I also see is the fact that it's not accessible, particularly for individuals with disabilities. And so, besides having a regular schedule, it's also about moving towards um, plowing the sidewalk so that we can actually access um, the, green, the, the green line, the red line, the blue line. But I'm mentioning the green line because it is one of the most inequitable lines because the green line, as you know, touches the west side and the south side, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see more of that along the, uh, the green line. But it also requires us to push on our bus-only lanes. This is something that I believe we can do right away. You know, they've started it on Chicago Avenue but then it's abruptly interrupted or it's not as clear and identifiable. Being able to move bus buses a lot faster, especially for most families who do not have an L stop within walking distance. I just happen to live in a neighborhood where I, I live near Central and Lake so I can walk a few blocks to, to my stop. But having bus only lanes with traffic signals that give buses preferences so that they can move about on a more regular basis. But also, so that's thing too. The third thing is, we have to create a real pathway um, for economic opportunity for the people of the city of Chicago because we know that CTA, it's understaffed. And, and in part because it's not safe, right? It's not just the riders, it's also um, the individuals who actually move the city about. And so making sure that we have real competitive pay but also creating opportunities for young people to access CDLs, right? Though I know you have to be 21. CDL is... CDL license, so to be able to operate, um, you know, larger vehicles like, like buses, for instance. You know, these are good paying jobs. These are good paying union jobs with benefits. Now there's still room for, for growth within those positions. So that's thing three. And I think the final thing is that we have to provide more adults and support systems along our platforms because of what was just described. In many instances, it's not just the violent um, interactions that people are experiencing, but it's also these mental health interactions that, that have made it very difficult um, and I've seen it, it's hard, but being able to direct them to services, that's another dynamic because we have to create those services as well. Right. And so, so, so you want more adults, you want more adult supervision on, the, on those platforms, and et cetera, but what about police? Do you want more policing? Do you want more security? And what would that look like? So look, policing has one particular role, mm -hmm. right? 
And so having policing available um, along our public transportation system, I'm not opposed to that. What I'm saying though is, much like our neighborhood policing, if that is our only strategy, then we're not dealing with it in a very comprehensive way, mm -hmm. right? Because this dynamic that somehow the only way in which you can serve the people of Chicago is through surveillance and policing, I hope the city of Chicago recognizes that is not a world-class city. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what we've described with the CTA is, is a real mess. Uh, is, there, is there a leadership problem here? Uh, you call for the, for the police superintendent to be, to be fired. He's, go he's gone now. Should we change leadership at the top of the CTA? There is a leadership problem there, right? And I don't know these individuals personally, but I do know that city council has, has, has pushed repeatedly to get CTA leadership to come to the table and to actually have a real discussion with the people of the city of Chicago, and um, they've bucked that, and they've refused that. Under my leadership, here's what I expect. People to be compassionate, collaborative, and competent. And if you can't demonstrate those very basic fundamental traits of a leader, you know, then we will have to look elsewhere to find that, because in order to have a world-class city, we have to have a transportation system that works. It doesn't get discussed enough, but as a social studies teacher, one of the demands from those who were formerly enslaved, it wasn't just healthcare, education, jobs, and housing. The fifth demand of the formerly enslaved was transportation. Mm -hmm. And so we don't talk about transportation from a civil rights perspective, though we always celebrate the bus boycott. Like one of the greatest movements that was ever provocated in this nation was around public transportation. And so demanding that leadership comes to the table is a ideology that is based from black liberation. Now everybody yeah, right. benefits from it, but this is why I'm, in, I'm very much focused mm -hmm. on making sure that my legacy as mayor of the city of Chicago is to see public transportation reimagined revived and available in an equitable way so that the very people who fought for transportation, my ancestors, mm -hmm. that the city of Chicago gets to be a world-class city leading the charge on what public transportation was always designed to do, particularly from people who were struggling in communities that I've grown up in. And, and, and those folks are, are, are much more dependent on the CTA than others, so. I, yeah, and, and, and thank you, Laura, because I want to make sure that I'm clear yes. about that. That's a good line. Because we, we do rely upon public transportation more than anyone else, and especially our, our everyday workers, mm -hmm. right? People who are cleaning windows, people who are providing childcare for families. Those are the working people that rely upon public transportation, and thank you for highlighting well, that. Well, the people that had to, to, to ride the CTA during the pandemic because they had to go to work. All right, let's move on. Um, the, we, we're here in Pilsen, and um, one of the things that Bach Club hears a lot about from Pilsen residents are property taxes. Pilsen is a gentrifying area, like many others in the city, and their concern is the shocking increases in property taxes. There was a 45% increase in property taxes for homeowners in this area that came late last year. So what, what would you do to work to bring property taxes down? What is your plan to do that, and would you consider a property tax cap in Cook County? I'm not going to raise property taxes. I'm the only person running in this race who made a commitment to that. And Ever, for, the, for your four-year term. For my first term, we're not raising property taxes. Okay. Listen, it is hard enough to live in the city of Chicago. 
what has become increasingly clear is that property taxes is one of the driving forces that are, that's making it difficult for families to stay. And we, we can't ignore how we got here though, right? Because of the budgetary schemes of my opponent in the 90s that led to the financial crisis that we are experiencing right now is why that burden has been placed on taxpayers. Since 2017, I was an organizer. We pushed to restore the levy so that we would actually secure retirement for the people who live and work and serve this city, but it cost the taxpayers $2.5 billion, mm -hmm. right? But it also requires us to work collaboratively with the Cook County government, which I have a few relationships there, um, to make sure that we are providing you know, assessment as well as making sure that um, assessment support, but also making sure that we are collaborating with Cook County government to make sure that the residents are receiving the tax exemptions that they may not be aware of. And as Cook County Commissioner, I can tell you, there are a number of people who did not know they had tax exemptions. And within, I don't know, the last year and a half that I've served as a Cook County Commissioner over the course of four years, but within the last year and a half in particular, we have returned $700,000, $800,000, almost, we might even be upwards to a million dollars of just tax dollars that the county owed taxpayers that they didn't know that they had. Right. And we literally went through the list ourselves, And we called the residents and said, yo, the government owes you money and you don't have to pay for an attorney. We'll help you fill out the paperwork. And Maria Pappas sends the check. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that those um, collaborative efforts are available, but we also have to make sure there's a commitment not to raising property taxes. And I've made that commitment. Okay. And you've also talked about other taxes, so uh, <laughs> you laugh because I know this has been a hot topic. You want a real estate transfer tax uh, on properties over a certain amount. You want to, you, you want to, you you believe that wealthier folks and businesses should pay more more than their fair share. Explain your, your give us a, if, you, if you could in a nutshell your tax proposal. We're going to we need to eliminate the structural deficit, so we need revenue to do that, and we find efficiencies in the budget as well to help us get to that number. We need to make up to $1 billion of new investment. We need to do that. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that without raising property taxes. And so what I've proposed is a plan. I know the people of Chicago are not used to this because it's never happened. And I've been a part of this infrastructure for a very long time. When was the last time you've had a politician tell you exactly how they plan to raise revenue? Mm -hmm. Because I believe and I trust the people of Chicago. Look, if there's a particular idea that you do not like, it doesn't mean that I don't get it. It means I'm thinking about it. Now, of course, all of it will have impact one way or the other. But the question that we have to ask is, is it okay that we have 65,000 plus people in the city of Chicago that are unhoused? Is that okay? How do you call yourself a world-class city and we want to attract businesses and large corporations to the city of Chicago, but don't go over there. Right. Don't drive down that street. Right? And so the plan that we put forth, whether it's a real estate transfer tax, which is being proposed by advocates who want to make sure that we end um, homelessness in the city of Chicago, that should not be seen as a radical idea. People having homes should not be seen as a radical idea, right? Okay. So estate, that's a real estate transfer one. tax. What's... Here's the thing about the financial transaction tax. Mm -hmm. It is done all over the globe. Mm -hmm. Here's the part that's fascinating to me. And I'm not saying this as a way to prove or to substantiate that I'm right, but even Mike Bloomberg agrees that we should have a financial transaction tax. Mm -hmm. 
He said it. And when would a working class progressive ever agree with, what is he, a billionaire? So for the first time in the history of the world, a billionaire agrees with working people in the city of Chicago, right? And it's been done. And we're not even talking about a heavy um, tax. We're talking about a half of a penny right. on high volume trading. Well, so, some critics say it's not practical. It's not applicable because it's except for in Switzerland and France yeah. okay. and other places in the world where they actually have a higher uh, rate than what I'm even proposing. Here's the bottom line. Whether it's a jet fuel tax, whether it's a financial transaction tax, I head fundamentally, tax. a head tax, I fundamentally believe in the core democratic principles, even as President Biden said, that a teacher and a firefighter should not pay the same tax rate as a billionaire. It's just that simple. When we were fighting, remember this, Laura, when we were organizing and fighting for a fair tax structure, mm -hmm. right? A progressive income tax. 71% of Chicagoans agreed with it. Now we know that Ken Griffin spent 50, 60 million dollars to defeat it. Now he has also entered into this race. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> because he's very wealthy and he wants to protect his, his interests, of course. So um, you, you mentioned earlier, I have so many, many things I want to get to here. You mentioned earlier that you're, you were an, or, you're an organizer, organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, and, and you've been asked about your relationship with the Chicago Teachers Union. In fact, you've been asked if, if people are worried that it's a very close, cozy relationship and that you won't be able to distance yourself as mayor from them and you'll be in some ways doing their bidding. Um, is there anything you disagree with? You've, when you've been asked about that before, is there anything you disagree with, with with the CTU and how will you make sure that you aren't unduly influenced by them as mayor? I will be the mayor for every single resident of the city of Chicago. I will be, and I'm humbled to be in a position to come from the working class labor movement to be in this position. And I have a fiduciary responsibility to protect the interest of every single person who is counting on me to lead and to lead with integrity, which I've always told people the truth and I will always tell the people of Chicago the truth. And here's the other harsh reality. I'm grateful that we are moving away from mayoral control of our public schools because it has been an absolute disaster. The Chicago Teachers Union and Chicago Public Schools will have to go to an elected board together to come up with solutions and ideas to make sure that public education is a real political goal. Like a free, well-funded public education, if it's a real political goal, teachers, school clerks, all the individuals who make up this local, will have to go to CPS and work with the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Now, someone who sends their children to public schools in the city of Chicago, I need it to work. But let me just offer this too, though. My value system for public education did not start when I became a teacher or an organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union. Because much like I've described as a social studies teacher, and I hate to bore you all, because I know every time I say social studies teacher, like half the audience starts to like nod off. But I know there's a few of you Your that enjoy social studies. Your students didn't, I'm sure, studies. though, right? No, 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 they always <laughs> love coming into my classroom. Yeah. But it was W.E.B. Du Bois that said that public education at the expense of the state, particularly in the South, after all, is a Negro idea. I am tethered to that ideology. 
that people who believe that public education at the expense of the state has to be available for the very people who birthed the idea, that's the team that I'm always going to be on. That, that, that's my proclivity, is to make sure that children in the city of Chicago, whether it's Jefferson Park or Morgan Park, why do we have to apply for a system that is ostensibly free? That's what I want to transform. Working with the school board, working with, the, with CTU, working with CPS, and working with the General Assembly to make sure that our schools are fully funded and supported. That should be the goal of everyone, and that's what I'm prepared to do as the next mayor of the city of Chicago, okay. work with everyone. Okay. But you've never disagreed with the CTU on anything. There's, you have Can no you disagreements me, with them on anything. How about we do this? Can you give me an example? Because mm -hmm. it'll be easier. Why don't you give me an example it's, of something that the CTU has proposed and you ask my opinion well, that's, on that? Well, that, that's, that's cherry picking then. I mean, there's, no, CTU I mean, you has can, done a lot uh, of things. So, so then here's, the, here's the, the, the reason why the framing of that question mm -hmm. um, doesn't get us to the ultimate answer that the larger dynamic is, am I gonna be fair for everyone? Mm -hmm. Will I um, be attached to an organization that I work for? I think that's a fair question. To ask me what I disagree with the CTU on, let's think about what we have been advocating for in the city of Chicago. Nurses, social workers, counselors, therapists, sustainable community schools, an elected representative school board to make sure that children are housed, mm -hmm. right? To make sure that black women in particular who have been targeted by school privatization and veteran teachers as a whole who have lost their jobs because of school privatization to proliferation of charters, right? In communities where schools have been closed. And when you put a map over the proliferation of charter schools and school closings, these are also the most violent neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. If you're asking me if I believe that that is the right fight, then I'm gonna say, yes, that's the right fight. Now, if there are budgetary demands that we cannot meet as a city, who better to go back in the room and say, y'all, come on. If, if, I'm, if I'm saying no, mm -hmm. you gotta know that they know that I'm saying no from a very, very, very pure mm -hmm. place. Okay, well that's- Who better to say somebody no than someone that they actually their know? Their friend, their friend, okay. All right, um, one more education question and we got so much to get to here. Uh, you've uh, selective enrollment schools. I've seen you uh, quoted, pushing back on that concept uh, that you called it a stratified system that quote, serves only the wealthiest students. Um, some people say it's a that that system is crucial to keep middle and upper middle class families in the city. Uh, what's your take on the on the uh, system and how would you change it, the selective enrollment system? Yeah, so look, it, it has exacerbated the stratified school district that we are living in right now. So when you look at many of the selective enrollment schools, check out the enrollment of those schools with black children. Mm -hmm. Just look. I mean, this is not, this is what the data is producing. This is not just my own opinion of it. This is what is actually happening. What I do not want as mayor of the city of Chicago with poor parents and even middle class families to come with their hand in hat in hand, begging for a school. And so my vision for public schools is that to make sure that there is an equitable distribution of the resources and the dollars that are available, and then let's fight collectively together to make sure that we are developing um, a, a holistic approach to, to, to a child's development. And so that includes to make sure that we are, as I mentioned, whether it's CDL, carpentry, electrician, 
welding. I mean, there are a number of trades that we can infuse in our public school system that sets our children up for the economy that they're ultimately going to inherit. And so selective enrollment, of course, I understand why people would want it because they want the best. Right. That's what they're really asking for. The fact that they are going through a selective process, just understand what we are asking parents to do. That you have to wait for your number to come up mm -hmm. to get the best. So what does that say about the rest of the families who do not get there? We are inherently telling them that they are not getting the best. And so that's why I believe in sustainable community schools. So, but how would you change that? Would you eliminate the selective enrollment system? Would you tweak it in some way? How would you change it? Because it's by nature, as you say, it's selective. It's just why I'm a proponent in, in sustainable community schools, right? Because sustainable community schools is a model that has been used all over the country that we finally got it together here in the city of Chicago. And I believe we only have 20. I'm gonna give you one quick example because it's in my county district. Bidler Elementary School was on Rahm's list to close. We fought to keep it open. We came up with an alternative model to school turnarounds and privatization and closures, and we instituted the sustainable community school model. And basically these schools receive an additional $1 million locally controlled to do as they wish. And now Byler Elementary is one of the top schools in the entire city of Chicago, and it's, an, it's a model for the rest of the city. And you know what they did? They included the community. And so there's a community-based organization that's attached to this school, and so they provided mental health services, parent participation has gone up, they're building gardens around mm -hmm. the school, there's a deeper investment in the community because there's actual resources to give the families the ability to actually do more. Uh, suspensions are down, fights are down, there's restorative justice practices, so it's giving a, a, a deeper, deeper dynamic within the community as a whole. Like, these are, these are not just ideas, these are policy positions that I can take as a mayor, advocate for it, and then adjust that to make sure that we are including more high schools. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, the best part about Chicago and our high schools are the rivalries. I mean, come on, right? We can't make school just simply about bubble sheets. I want to see Kenwood beat Simeon in the state playoffs with baseball. I'm just saying, I'm a Bronco dad, right? So God bless you, Wolverines. But I want to see, you know, you know, real competition with debate teams, chess, swimming. I mean, there are so many different dynamics that we are missing out on because we have narrowed our curriculum. I'm right. saying expand that and grow it. And yes, it does cost resources. Mm -hmm. That's why we fought for a new funding formula mm -hmm. that CPS is not implementing, where we should be implementing the, the needs base versus the per pupil base. We are literally, as a district, leaving $1 billion on the table mm -hmm. that we could have to have social workers, nurses, um, staffing that actually meets the demands of the community. All of that is possible. This is not hyperbole. Right. It's available to us. You need a mayor who actually believes in public education. And I was mentioning to this to you backstage, mm -hmm. I might be the first mayor in modern history that actually sends their children to the Chicago public schools. Yes. You and you have three children and they are where? Where, where, where do they attend? So at my eight and 10 year old attend O.A. Thorpe in Portage Park. And then our oldest um, attends Kenwood. 
And you want to know one of the main reasons why he's at Kenwood mm -hmm. is because he plays the violin. And there's not a high school on the west side of Chicago that offers orchestra. So he has to travel with 20 miles or whatever that's to go to school. I don't know if it's 20 it, miles. It's, you sound like my dad. It, I went it, 20 miles <laughs> it up feels, the hill. It probably way, feels like snow. 20 miles. <laughs> well, it certainly does feel like it because it's like 45 to 48 yeah. minutes in traffic. So. Yeah. So I have a couple, I have some, what, uh, I hate these gimmicky things, but this is a way to get a, a, a bunch of stuff done really quickly, a lightning round for you. You know, and I, I need a yes or no on each one of these things. A rent cap in Chicago or some other form of rent control, yes or no? I, I believe we should have rent control. Okay. Will you commit to reinstating the, de the Department of Environment or calling it something else like a Department of Environmental Justice with a full staff and budget? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Uh, do you support universal basic income? Yes, we have the largest one on Cook County government. And I was help lead that charge for the largest pilot program in the country. And, and, and would you expand that and expand that to the city? Do you, yes. have, do you have a target on how big it would be? It has to be as big as the city of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> would you support ranked choice voting in time for the 2027 municipal elections? I'm being encouraged to say yes. And that is a yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, that would have made it interesting. That would have had an interesting impact on this first round of mayoral election if we had had that. In I place. would have won on February 28th. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you support it. Reparations for the descendants of enslaved people. Yes, and we start with those who have been tortured by this government, particularly those under the, 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 the direction of John Burge. What do you, you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so when we talk about reparations, I think it's important to note that where you have seen immediate damage done, um, a lot of times the conversation around reparations, people try to distance themselves from this formation because it happened yesteryear, which I don't agree with that premise. But one of the greatest examples in modern history is the fact that we had many black men in particular um, who were convicted of crimes that they did not do and they were tortured under some of the most brutal circumstances right here in the city of Chicago. We have to repair that damage. and We have to make sure that that history is taught in our schools so it never happens again. Okay. As I mentioned, we have questions from readers, and I, we, have, we, we received dozens of them, and we won't get them all, but, but I want to get to some especially important ones, especially questions that were repeated. Um, as mayor, would you, would you move the proposed near Southside High School forward as, as planned at 24th and State, or would you seek to host it in an alternative location or scrap it all together? Can I have a D? You gave me A, B, C, and I want a D choice, and what What's I would D? say is, is that it really has to be a community process that what I do not want, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely serious about this, we, we can't keep pitting communities against one another. And I appreciate the leadership of State Representative Teresa Ma that, that is calling for a community process that gives every voice an opportunity um, to lay out a vision um, for what we need. And I also believe that where public housing used to exist, we should build public housing there again. So you, you feel, you would, you would feel then, I mean, you want to go through the community process, but you feel that that property should be reserved for public housing. I, I have called for a moratorium on building anything on land that used to be the homes of people of the city of Chicago. Okay. Particularly public housing. Okay. A question from a longtime Auburn Gresham resident and Block Club reader. 
What substantive steps will you take to ensure that new investments in underserved communities truly benefit longtime residents? And that relates to the Invest Southwest. You said already that you would continue that. Um, how would you continue that and how would you answer this question? It's a great question. So here's an area where I believe that Mayor Lori Lightfoot um, did an exceptional job at, at building. The challenge, of course, was is that it's a reimbursement program. So for many small businesses, they didn't have the resources or the dollars to front to get the business off the ground in order to, to receive the benefit of the, of, 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 of the dollars, right? And so what I've said very clearly is one, I wanna conservatively add $500 million. Two, our communities have to participate as this question has just um, been asked, communities like Austin, Roseland, Auburn, Gresham, and it has to be a real community process. I really believe in this, Laura, that I wanna close the gap between the fifth floor and everyday residents of the city of Chicago. I am not gonna be our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents mayor. I believe in co-governance and I trust the needs and the desires of the people can actually help us make powerful decisions to ultimately transform the very communities that have been disinvested in for too long. What does that community participation look like? Are you talking about task forces, community councils, uh, you know, public meetings? What, what would be the process to get that input? Yeah, all of the above, right? Because here's the challenge. We have to do some real hard needs assessments in our communities so that the type of businesses that we are trying to grow and businesses that we want to attract, it has to match the demands of the community. I don't want redundancy, right? And so this is why community process is important because we saw this with Whole Foods, for instance. We have to do two dynamics. We have to make sure that we are creating economic drivers like small businesses while simultaneously making sure that we're protecting workers and growing salaries because it makes no sense to offer a business and you don't have people with jobs that actually patronize the business, mm -hmm. right? And so we have to have a dual tra track. It has to be a comprehensive approach because what people are often worried about is that when businesses come into certain communities, people start to get worried of whether or not they're gonna be able to afford to still live in this community. So we wanna attract businesses and ideas that meet the needs of the various communities in which have been underserved and under-resourced, but we also have to continue to build on this economic track so that we can actually create a tax base that can actually help, you know, be clients of the said businesses that we want to be in our communities. What would you say is, um, there, there's been so much, so many challenges in so many neighborhoods in the city, what would you say is the the least served or the, the, the most underserved community in Chicago right now? I see you, I hear you, and I love you. Um, so you're gonna get one scripture. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? When you love people, you invest in them. Mm -hmm. There is no bad idea that my children can ever come to me with because I want what's best for them. And what I want for my children and my family, I want for every single family in the city of Chicago to have a better, stronger, safer Chicago where we do not leave it to chance that we'll be able to access public accommodations, but we need to establish a government that offers guarantee. And that's what I'm gonna do when I'm mayor of the city of Chicago. So there's just, every community needs that support. You're not gonna pick one. Is that what you're saying? I am saying that there is enough to go around for everyone. Okay. I want to see those dollars.
Okay, another question from, from our readers. Now that we have, and this is this reader's words, now that we have proof that white supremacists have infiltrated the Chicago Police Department, what will you do to change hiring practices to exclude white supremacists like the Proud Boys member, Robert Bacher? Yeah. Maybe we should just ask a question on the police exam, are you a white supremacist? No. I, <laughs> Somebody will probably actually answer that. <laughs> Look, as I said earlier, when, when I actually do believe that the vast majority of people who show up on the front line, or the front lines every single day, actually care about this city. and They want to do their job. They want to do it well. And they want to get back home to their family, right? And we, we've seen violence proliferate in many different aspect, aspects, right? You know, for a, a stretch there with the school shootings that were happening, you know, the things that teachers had to worry about, the things that police officers have to worry about, nurses, bus drivers can tell you this, train operators. If you are a public employee and you're serving on the front line, you're exposed more and more to the trauma that has gone untreated in this city, in this country, quite frankly. What we have to do, though, is be honest about the barriers that these standardized tests um, have caused. And attracting a diversified workforce requires us to make sure that we are eliminating barriers from keeping them out of the workforce. And what we've seen is from psychological exams um, that dismiss qualified applicants, um, if they have misdemeanors in their past or their FICA scores um, look like mine, <laughs> that somehow they're not qualified to serve and to protect. And so these are some of the dynamics that we have to, to eliminate these barriers to make sure that there is greater opportunity to have a diversified um, workforce. And of course, that includes our law enforcement. And here's the last thing. If we are aware that there's been an active participation in these hate groups, I fire them. Now, look, I know there's a union contract right. that, that we would have to deal with, but take me to arbitration then. But, but what we can't do is to allow contracts to, to not only encourage, but give way to hateful, awful ideology. And that starts at the top, and that also starts with good supervision, and that's why, again, I'm looking for people who are compassionate, collaborative, and competent. Uh, how do you, and this relates again to what we just discussed, the, the FOP, some people feel that they're, 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 some of the leadership in the FOP is it's not necessarily uh, supportive of every community in the city. Um, how would you, and, and that the FOP might resist a mayor like you because of some of the things you've already said. How, how would you plan to work collaboratively with the FOP given, given that background to foster the needed culture change in the police department? This is why the consent decree is important, right? One of the baselines for the consent decree is to utilize our research institutions and our universities to come up with policies that ultimately provide transformation and reform to the police department. There are not enough ideas that are available to us because we're not spending to implement the consent decree. As far as working with labor, including the Fraternal Order of Police, I'm prepared to sit at the table with anyone. I am. And the goal is, is to make sure that public safety um, does not get lost in the midst of this contract. 
and that you can protect the interests of workers and making sure that they get to do their job most effectively while also providing support systems in place. I've talked to rank and file members in law enforcement. Many of them are frustrated every single day because they don't know who their supervisor is day to day. We literally have supervisors who supervise the supervisor. Mm -hmm. The turnover is so substantial because you just don't know who you're reporting to every day. That's like me as a public school teacher showing up and there's a different principal every other week. And, and why is that? What is, there, what is there about the, the structure or the infrastructure of the police department if that's happening? Because it requires someone to actually put together a plan. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a mayor who is willing to sit down with, with, with experts to help devise that plan. Under no circumstances will I ever say that I know everything about everything. In fact, anyone who says that they know everything about everything sounds like a rapper that I won't <laughs> mention their name. <laughs> you know, I love you, man. <laughs> but, you know, I'm willing to learn from the expertise that people bring into their discipline, and that's the type of collaborative spirit that we need in the city of Chicago. We also have law enforcement. They have to buy and purchase, in many instances, their own equipment. If their pants rip or their shirt it's torn and it's coming out of their pocket. As a public school teacher, I can tell you how frustrating that is when you have to buy your own supplies mm -hmm. for a job that you have signed up for, but you don't have the resources to actually do that job. And so these are different dynamics that we can have. We can have a supervisory structure that is on par with national averages because it actually will lead to better policing because that's the type of accountability that has to come from within. And having the right people who are supervising, they can actually better help support the individuals who are on the front line serving and protecting every single day. What kind of a police department, a police superintendent are you looking for? It has to be someone internal to the department? My preference is someone who understands the makeup of the city of Chicago. That is my preference. I actually believe that there's some value to that. As I mentioned before, you know, where my wife and I are raising our children in Austin on the west side, you know, we're in a particular territory where we are in the midst of the crosshairs on a regular basis. I want someone who understands that and knows that so that our policing is smart not just tough, right? It's too reactionary. Mm. And so every time something breaks out, then everybody funnels over here. And then when that cools out and something over there breaks out, everybody runs over there. As a teacher, one of the best things you can ever do, especially if you're teaching in Chicago public schools, have a lesson plan, especially with middle school students. <laughs> because if you're not organized and there's not a plan, you have to have a plan for the plan just in case the original plan don't quite work out. Mm -hmm. That is what I'm looking for, someone who is strategic, someone who is thoughtful, someone who is courageous, someone who is willing to be on the front line with the rank and file members, someone who has the work and lived experience of people who are living in these communities, someone who can bring neighborhoods together, someone who is transformational, someone who's willing to work with me and the Attorney General. That's what I'm gonna be looking for. And, some, and, from, and from you, I'm sure you've had conversations with higher ups in the police department. Are there people in the police department right now that you that, that, as you described, that have the potential to do that job? There are some strong recommendations that are coming my way. And I'm not going to mention names, Laura. I no, knew you were you. going to say that. <laughs> but you have some strong recommendations that you find impressive. I've had some, there's been some really confirming conversations because look, our public safety plan, many of the ideas are coming right from the rank and file. You know, the situation in Memphis, many people talk about just the brutality uh, of, of, that, of that murder but they also speak to the fact that we don't have strong supervision. 
But we also have to be honest about the fact that we are asking law enforcement to do more than what their job requires. And you need someone who is sensitive to that, who understands that, to make sure that the home that they leave every single day, that they come, they come back um, prepared to love their family and that they have the support that they need to process the trauma that they are experiencing. And that is a part of a make, the makeup of the consent decree to provide those type of services for, for law enforcement. As someone who has served on the front line as a public school teacher, one of the best things that you can do for a frontline worker is give them the ability to do their job and not make it an expectation that they do someone else's. We have, we're almost out of time. I just want to get a couple more quick reader questions in these last two. Uh, what do you plan to do to restore vitality to Michigan Avenue in downtown? I'm going to be the biggest advocate for the city of Chicago. It is the city of Chicago, for crying out loud. All of the assets that we have, whether it's you know, our, our, our rails, um, our airports, the water that we have access to, the vibrancy of the city of Chicago. I really wish you all could see what I see when I travel all around the city of Chicago. Yes, there's some economic despair, but there's absolute opportunities for growth. And so this is something that is part of my economic plan as well. Attracting um, biotech, logistics, um, life sciences with the vacancy that exists downtown. I believe there's like 25% vacancy. We can also reimagine these, these spaces for affordable living. Wouldn't it be nice if people who serve people downtown, who are part of the rank and file infrastructure of working class people, that they can actually afford to live in the neighborhood that they work in? We don't ever imagine downtown. People say downtown is a neighborhood. Then how about we make sure that neighborhood people can live in the neighborhood of downtown? And so there are so many different opportunities that we have to attract larger businesses and corporations to the city of Chicago. But of course, we have to make sure the city is safer. And I'm committed to that. One of the things that me and the attorney general spoke about today with hiring more detectives, these smash and grabs and this, these, this organized retail theft, we got to get that under control. And the way you get it under control is you disincentivize it from happening. The way you disincentivize these, act, these violent acts is to actually catch people. Right? Mm -hmm. You actually have to catch people, right? right. And, and so that's something that I'm very much committed to. Last question, and before we close, uh, the LGBTQ uh, plus community, um, what, do you, what is your plan to, uh, to uh, support LGBTQ rights, and particularly around L those the LGBTQ-owned businesses? Do you have a plan to support and help grow those businesses? Yes, so in fact, a part of my entire sweeping plans that I have proposed and people can find this at brandonforchicago.com, is that having an office that's dedicated to LGBTQ plus um, community is important to me and I'm committed to that because it's also about the research, the grants that are available, organizers that can make sure that we're meeting the needs of the community, but also making sure that we are providing protection and support, particularly with black trans women um, who have been targeted, who have been ignored. Um, we, we're, again, we're not solving crimes, right? We're not. We're not investigating crimes in many instances, and so a part of my, my full LGBTQ plus plan is ensuring that there's actual voice a part of my administration, and I'm you know, looking forward to, to, to being connected with all of our communities, but in particular, the LGBTQ plus community, because it's a community that cannot be ignored and it won't be ignored under my, okay. under my, under my administration. This has been a wonderful conversation, and we're, we will hopefully continue it after you're mayor, right? How about that? What y'all yeah. say? <laughs> right.
We got a that's, few voters that's not out an there. endorsement. Uh, so my final question is, uh, the most recent poll uh, suggests that there's a lot of undecided voters out there. What would you say, and I'm sure some of those folks are in this room right now, what would you say to undecided voters? You know, the politics of old have left our families behind, and there's a lot of uncertainty in this city. What I know for sure is that the pattern and the behavior of my opponent speaks louder than any word that he can say. That he's never won an election, and everywhere he's been in charge of an economy, it has been harmed. That if you want someone who is committed to building a better, stronger state for Chicago, someone who is collaborative, someone who is compassionate, someone who is co competent, then I'm your person. I'm grateful that there's been an incredible movement that have propelled me in this, in this position, but we didn't just get here, right? We've been fighting for an elected representative school board. We did that. We have oversight over policing. We have elected officials to do that. We've done that. We've made public accommodations a real dynamic, a real goal in this city. And in October, I was pulling at 2.3%. But yet, here I be, <laughs> right? And so if you want someone who is committed to bringing economic, racial, and social justice and bringing our communities together, like what my candidacy has done from Jan Schakowsky to Delia Ramirez to Congressman Davis to Jonathan Jackson to, to child care workers to nurses, independent political organizations, over a thousand volunteers, over hundreds of individual donors that have come together to bring this moment about, on April 4th, we actually get to see the full manifestation of what someone dreamed of with the labor rights movement and the civil rights movement were to ever collide what enormous potential it would be those are the words of dr. Keene, and I'm hoping that we can live out the manifestation of what he dreamed of thank you very much we will see thank you very much thanks for joining us all of you for black club the ballot we have a we have flyers on our merchandise ta table out out front with that have QR codes that offer you a free one month subscription. And there's plenty of great stuff to buy out there as well. I want to remind you that on Monday, March 27th at 4 p.m., we will be right here, right back here for a conversation with Paul Vallis. Check out our website, blockclubchicago.org for more information. And be sure to follow all of our great reporting on all the citywide races. See you on the 27th. Thanks for coming. Mm -hmm.